If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And today, we are going to be speaking with Bethany Planton and Trish Bachman about recognizing and addressing burnout. As part of this, this is a great opportunity for me just to remind everybody that stressed out leads to burnout. And as I look into 2021, and I know this because we can see this historically, 2021 is likely going to be a much more difficult year for most nonprofits than 2020. When we look at the last recession, the first year of those recessions, the government jumped in with some stimulus, foundations upped their giving, and then year two comes along and the government's pulling back on stimulus and foundations go back to what is now normal giving for them. And some individuals who are donors have been hard hit. And so they actually lose individual contributions as well. So as I look out into the next year, I think next year is going to be a much more difficult year. And that's why we are going to be offering a coaching for tough times group. And it's group coaching to make it affordable for every nonprofit. If you go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, you can find out more about our curriculum-based group coaching that is going to start in January and help you manage what are likely going to be some very difficult times in 2021. But now let's move on and talk about burnout. You all have all heard me share my own burnout story on this podcast, so I'm not going to do it again. But if you're a first-time listener, let me just share with you that about seven years ago, I took the metaphorical plane that is my career, crashed it into a snowy mountain, stumbled out of the plane, bruised and bloody, and had to figure out how to piece everything back together again. So I've experienced burnout, and almost everyone has experienced burnout. If you've not yet, I'd be willing to bet at some point in your career you're going to. And the reason I can safely make that bet is because burnout is endemic at all levels in the nonprofit sector. This is true whether you're the executive director, the development director, a case manager, the receptionist. 
it is almost guaranteed that in some point in your career, you are going to burn out. And this is true as well for our guests, Bethany Planton and Trish Bachman. They have both experienced burnout, and they have both successfully rebuilt their careers and their lives. And that's why we're having them on today, because we all need to understand what burnout looks like, but also understand that there is life after burnout. In fact, life after burnout can be a lot better than life before burnout ever was. Bethany is the founder of BMP Consulting. And that is a grant writing consulting practice. She helps organizations develop grant calendars, do their grant writing, do their grant management. Trish Bachman is in a similar line of work, although she's not a part of BMP Consulting. She started the Write Stuff Delaware, and that's write with a W, like I'm writing a letter to a friend. Both are grant professional certified, and both have agreed to come on to share their stories of burnout with you, as well as help you understand what you can do to avoid burnout. Hey, Bethany, Trish, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having us. As I mentioned in the intro, I have shared my burnout story multiple times with listeners. And one of the things that I know, and it's probably a little sick and twisted of us in the nonprofit sector, we love to tell the war stories about the time that we burned out. And even more than that, we all love hearing the stories of other people. So which of you wants to go first? I can go first. This is Bethany. I think we like to hear other people's stories because it helps us know we're not alone when we experience burnout. But my story is kind of early in my career, actually. And job opening opened up at a community college. And it was only 20 hours a week. They wanted a grant writer for 20 hours a week, part-time position, which also meant no benefits. But at the time, I didn't want to be working full-time. I had some other responsibilities that made it so I didn't want the full-time position. But being a newer grant writer, it quickly did come apparent that they needed way more than 20 hours a week to like actually make any traction with a grant. And so during my first year, they were making plans to make it a full-time position, have some benefits. They were going to offer summers off, which sounded awesome to me. Get a couple months off And it would offer a few benefits, maybe not the full extent since I'd have the summers off, but still that would have been okay. And I went through the whole interview process to make it full-time, including having to wait for an hour for the president to interview me after I'd been through other interviews. That should have been like probably red flag number 10. (laughs) After we'd gone through the whole interview process, they decided to continue to make it part-time. So there I am, 20 hours, new president has come in. I don't know the strategic plans, really. I don't know what where we want to go with our grants. He's brought in a consulting firm that's supposed to help us, but there's not a good balance of who is supposed to be doing what, how I'm supposed to help them. We eventually make it to 30 hours, but still no benefits, all these other problems. If I want to take vacation, I don't get any paid vacation, not getting any benefits whatsoever. After a couple of years, you know, that kind of starts to wear on you. And so I kind of made the decision that I can't stay. I can't stay because I was feeling like I don't want to come into work. You know, I'd come back from a vacation or just, you know, a three-day weekend and be like, oh, who wants to do this? This is awful. (laughs) Like they then decided to make the position full-time. By that point, I was done. I said, I can't do this anymore. Can't work under this kind of leadership. 
Bethany, I'd like for us to unpack this just a little bit. You had mentioned the interview process, waiting an hour to speak with the president was red flag number 10. And I always say this, whether you're looking for work or you're the employer and are looking to hire someone, you can't fix fit. So what were some of the red flags that had you seen, maybe you would not have ended up in a bad position? Definitely one was the college was transitioning from a longtime president who had been there, I don't know, over 10 years, something like that. He was not the original president, but they had combined. And so he was like the original of the whole college after it combined. Well, he was retiring and the system president was retiring at the same time. And so the retiring president had kind of cleaned up shop a little bit, moved people around, had people in different positions. And under that, the grant writer that had been working under him retired. And so that probably is red flag number one of if all these transitions, you know, maybe get the new president set before hiring somebody to come in and do something, especially as strategic as grant writing for a community college. Got it. And so it really just sounds like one of the largest red flags is there were just too many transitions in your organization. Were there any other red flags that you wish you would have paid attention to and walked away? They, as in the leadership, did not understand grants, didn't understand what I needed in doing grants. They didn't understand what information I needed, what what I needed access to, what either I needed to be a part of meetings or at least get good information sent back down to me about what they wanted to do. They just did not understand. Yeah. So let's also unpack. Let's fast forward now. So you took the job anyway, and you fast forward. And you're now at the point where they're offering you full-time and you're like, I'm done. What was going on? What did that feel like? They hadn't even offered me the full-time. They just said, let's do the interview process again for full-time. So even though I had been in the position, they wanted to do the interview process. But literally, they gave that to me. And like two weeks ahead of time, I already made the decision in my mind, I can't keep doing this. I'm done. Because I didn't even mention I had moved offices four or five different times in two years physical spaces. And one of those was like out where a receptionist would sit and greet people. Well, that's not conducive to writing or having meetings that have maybe confidential information a part of it. So when they talked about going full-time, I was like, I can't just in my head, it was like, nope, I cannot go through this process again. And not only be disappointed, but being frustrated if they decide not to make it full-time, even, you know, I don't, at this point, I'm not trusting what they've said. And how did this burnout impact the rest of your life? So I was tired. I mean, I just was exhausted. Didn't want to do a lot of things, even fun things, you know, things that I would normally want to do. Very cranky. I probably complained a lot to everybody, you know, probably was not always a very pleasant person to be around because that was just weighing so heavily on me that it was like, there's nothing else good or fun to do because this is just so heavy. I'll share with you, Bethany, and again, listeners have heard me talk about this. That reflects my burnout experience as well, where I literally became a toxic person. I can't imagine anybody, whether they were they were paid to work with me because, you know, paid to spend time with me because they worked with me, or they were my family. I can't imagine anybody wanting to spend time with me when I reached that point of just complete and utter toxicity. Bethany, thank you so much for sharing your war story. I know we're going to talk about next steps, but we also have to hear from Trish. Trish, what is your burnout story? My goodness. So I started in grassroots advocacy. I was a a survivor of a crime. 
And uh, when that happens to a person, it helps to assign meaning to it as a way of processing it. And so I became part of a national organization that didn't have a local chapter. So I became one of the founding members of the local chapter. And I became one of the first victim advocates for the chapter, became one of the first paid staff for the chapter, managing volunteers. And then eventually I became the first affiliate executive director. So a lot happened to me in a very short period of time. And the organization and advocacy and victim services, very emotional, passion-driven. So the people that I was working with who were also volunteers or staff also had the same background, the same victimization. And when you're dealing with people who have different levels of victimization, different levels of healing, it can become very draining. So I was in a position where I took this leadership role. And as part of being a leadership of a new organization in the state, it's very important to come to the table, to be seen, to network with the right people, to shake all the right hands, to sit in the right rooms. And so that became my focus. And I was driven to make the nonprofit vital, important, and strategic in working to solve the challenges. I'm very proud of the work that I did. But at one point, it got to be too much. I had a home life, a very young family, and dealing with not only the immense emotional load that I had to carry for the victims and survivors that I was working with, but also the running a nonprofit, which I didn't have any experience in, following the mandates of a national organization, as well as the expectations of our local audience. And it just became too much. I got to a point where I can picture it. I was sitting on the bathroom floor on the phone with my regional director and it was nine o'clock at night and she was yelling at me for something that I knew I could handle, but I wasn't being allowed to. And my husband was on the other side of the door telling me to give him the phone that he would talk to her. And my child is in another room crying and that was the moment I, I just knew that was it. I couldn't take any more. And I had to turn in, my, I turned in my notification. I gave them three weeks. Obviously, you turned in your notice. But what was the toughest part of addressing your own burnout? The hardest part for me was I had so much passion that I wanted to make a difference, that I wanted to give meaning to my own victimization and I was working so hard for it. And I had so many people that were depending on me, local people, the people that I was serving, the victim survivors that I was serving, the small group of professional professionals that were helping me to forward our mission and going to them and saying, I just can't do this anymore. I'm going to close the door on this. And fortunately, another agency, our Office of Highway Safety, offered me a job. And so I was able to take all of the work that I had done and all of the credibility that I had gotten. And I was able to push it forward through a government office, but continuing to educate, continuing to advocate. It allowed me to continue my work towards the mission. That was a very fulfilling time. I did that for eight years and I made a huge difference. Pleased to say, when I look back over my history and the time that I had in the nonprofit, 
but then moving into the government work, I can see how I improved all along the way, even though I was dealing with burnout, how I was able to take those challenges and make them stepping stones. Were you able to avoid burnout with your eight years with the government? Yes. As a matter of fact, I enjoyed the work so much. I was part-time and uh, they allowed me to work from home. I had a new baby. So for most of those eight years, I was able to do everything that I needed to do, including networking statewide with safety offices. And I was able to forward the message, create meaningful relationships, and I was able to do it all from home. Nice. And I will say you clearly demonstrated significant resiliency because you learned some things from the nonprofit experience and you carried them forward into your next job, which was with the government. And that has actually grounded my work very much in consulting because I wanted a new challenge. And um, doing the advocacy work became less important to me. And so I decided that I wanted to catalog all my talents, skills, and abilities and uh, what I enjoy doing, which is working with people. I enjoy nonprofits and I enjoy writing. Grant consulting just came to the top. I feel like through my experience now, I can relate to my small to mid-sized nonprofits, the challenges that they're dealing with. They have advocacy, they have passion, they have victim survivors, they have constituents, they have professionals that they need to network with to further their mission and their vision. And I feel very blessed that I have all that experience that I can take when I'm talking to a new client. I can say, I completely understand where you're at. I remember being in that situation too. I'd like to help. Oh, Trish, it's so nice when we can have true empathy with our clients. That's awesome. Bethany, what about you? What did your leaving the community college, what did your life after the community college look like? And how did you rebound from burnout? Well, Luckily, while I was working at the community college, since it was part-time, I had started subcontracting for other grant consultants. And so I was getting experience, getting my name out there, working with clients. And so a couple months after leaving the community college is when I established my consulting business. And so this year I'm celebrating four years of doing consulting and never looking back. I love it because you know what? I don't have to worry about a president being an hour late now. I don't have to ask permission to go on vacation. I just get to tell my clients, hey, I love you, but (laughs) I'm going on vacation. I'll see you in a week. I love that. Although I also know, because like you, I've been in my own consulting practice now for, gosh, I guess five, six years, something like that. I also know that sometimes I'm probably the toughest boss I ever had. Yes, I do have that trouble. And Trish can attest that I am a pretty tough boss to myself, but... I've lived with myself now for, you know, however many years, as opposed to trying to please someone else that I don't know they're thinking or they're not communicating well to me. So what are you doing now to manage your work and your life so that you're avoiding burnout? Great question. (laughs) This has been a conversation in our groups a lot, especially with COVID. And I will say this year, it was a little, I got burnout. I was not, you know, totally burnout where I wanted to just say, leave everything, but it was got to the point where it's, I can't keep up this pace. And so knowing now kind of what those feelings feel like, I feel like I can, you know, take a few steps back much faster and be like, okay, whoa, 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 let's pump the brakes. We need to maybe say no to a few more projects. We definitely need to, I need to schedule in time away from the computer. This summer, I ended up taking two weeks, a full two weeks off straight through. Um, 
I went to my parents' house and hung out. So it wasn't an exciting vacation. It's not the vacation I would have chosen normally, but I knew I needed that time away from the computer, that time away from even my apartment, just because if I'm sitting here, I'm seeing the chores that I need to do in the apartment or, you know, other personal things. But being in a different place gave me a chance to be like, I can play games with my family. I can, you know, hang out and let my mind rest from all that work that had been doing. And we will have seasons where sometimes you do have to work really hard for a couple months because that's just what the season is. Think of especially event planners where you might have your big event coming up and you're working a lot of hours up until then, but then scheduling that time afterwards to recuperate so that you have some downtime and some time to recuperate. That's been my biggest takeaway and knowing what I need to do. That's awesome, Bethany. It makes me think about something that I probably should really share. And gosh, this year I have worked six to seven days a week, almost all year. And so as we pulled into August, I'm, I was feeling a little tired. This is something that came much earlier in my career as well. So this year I made the intentional decision to take every Wednesday off in September, October, November, and December. In early August, I was like, I'm just tired. And so it's kind of great because now I work two days, I get a day off. I work two days, I get a weekend. I work two days and I get another day off. It's kind of awesome. But I'll also share with you that I'm not the one that came up with this concept. This actually was, this concept was given to me by an amazing boss in the mid 90s. I was a grant writer and I was easily working 55, 60 hours a week. And she says to me, Dolph, you're going to burn out. And I sort of said to her, look, 10, 12 hour days, that's what I like. That's what I'm going to do. And so she said, Dolph, all right, if you want to do 10 or 12 hour days, great. You just need to take every Wednesday off then. So you can come in on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. So for a few years, I literally would have a four-day work week, and I took the middle day. There were times that, as an example, if one of our federal funders could only come in for the site visit on Wednesday, okay, I'd come in. But for the most part, I took every Wednesday off. And it was a real game changer for me. So as I thought back to that, I was like, oh, I know what I'm doing this fall. I'm going to take every Wednesday off. That is a great example because everybody's schedule is different. And I feel like we're especially seeing that this year, like, Let's build the schedule that works for us. So if it works to take every Wednesday off, great. If you prefer to take every Friday off, great. You know, if you need to work a bunch of hours and then take two weeks off, do what you need to do, but take that vacation time and that time away. And one of the reasons I kind of wanted to share that is I would be willing to bet a lot of our listeners are listening to the three of us and saying, yeah, but you all are consultants, so you work for yourself. You can do that. So I also wanted to point out that when I was very early in my career, I had a boss that allowed me to do it as well. So I was an employee. I was a W-2 employee. So it's possible to do it as an employee as well, which is a great segue to ask you all, how does an employee have this conversation with their boss? It's easy for us because, you know, as you said, we can just say to our clients, oh, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. Love you. See you in two weeks. And our clients just accept that. How does the employee have this conversation? I'll jump in right here. Sure, Trish. Planned vacations are probably one of the most important things that you can do. So if you have vacation time and you have a boss that allows you to take your vacation time, which they should, then go ahead and get those on the schedule. And if you can schedule them so that they're regularly occurring every quarter, every six months, to give yourself a break, something to look forward to. And once it's planned, then go ahead and get yourself reservation, buy tickets, do something that's going to hold you accountable to those dates. But also, 
be upfront with your boss. Have a conversation. Have a frank conversation, um, as frank as you can make it. Some some bosses listen and some don't. Communication with leadership is a huge indicator of burnout level. So if you have a situation where you can talk to your boss frankly, or someone in your supervision chain, express your challenges, what you're having, because it's in their best interest for their employees to be engaged. And we know that burnout causes disengagement in employees. So starting that, that conversation is probably one of the best things that you can do, opening those lines of communication. I love that. I could not agree more. I would just add that if you have a boss that you can't talk to about the need to take a vacation, you need a different boss. Whether that's a different boss in the same organization or you change jobs, you need a different boss. And agree to go off of what Trish was saying, with if you're not quite sure how to start that conversation, one question can be to your boss is, I have all this work, but there's not enough time to get it done. What is your priority? So that they can see, your boss can see, oh, maybe you'll help them see, oh, we are asking you to do a lot. Let me help you prioritize. This needs to be done now, but I've been asking about this thing that's not due for 10 weeks. Put that on the back burner and help prioritize the list. Right. I would also say our message, the three of us, probably our message to those executive directors, to those managers is to be open, but also to lead by example. I'll share with you a couple of years ago, I was coaching an executive director. And when I do executive director coaching, we typically lay out five, really the, the executive director determines five goals for themselves in the year that we're going to be having a coaching relationship. I'm always clear that one of them must be a personal goal to take a vacation because too many EDs don't do that. This executive director set a goal of a one-week vacation. I encouraged this person to do two, and they were like, I've never done more than one. One is enough. So I said, okay, well, it is what it is. Think about taking a week and a half. And then as we started to get a couple of months up to the vacation, the person started to back out. Well, and the person actually said to me, it's not our culture in this organization for people to take a week off. And I said to this person again, who is the CEO of the organization, do you think it might be because you don't take a vacation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe it's not a culture because everyone looks at you and says, our boss's boss doesn't take a vacation. We shouldn't either. And I will say to this person's credit, they were introspective enough and self-aware enough. They were like, okay, that alone might be a good enough reason for me to take a vacation. <laughs> but I do think part of the message to our listeners who are managers is, gosh, it's just critical that we're open to these conversations. While we're talking about vacations, I also think it's really critical that people actually be able to go away on their vacation. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if either of you have ever worked someplace where there's this expectation you're going to check email or voicemail a few times a week or every day or something like that. Yep. And that that's not a vacation. That is not time away. You're always turned on. I agree with you completely, Bethany, because you just you can't disconnect. My clients know now that they're not going to hear from me. They might email me. They'll get the out of office. They'll get a response when I get back. I don't even usually don't even open the app to even look like I'm not tempted. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's leave that behind us. And I'll share with you when, when my husband and I, when we take an annual trip, we normally go away for two or three weeks. I have really good boundaries about email and voicemail. So while we're on the trip, we, we don't, I don't check email or voicemail, but my agreement with my husband and typically we go internationally and we often go pretty far away. So two, three flights that total 
20 hours or 25 hours to get there. So my agreement is I can work until we reach our destination. And at the end of the trip, the minute we, we board the plane to come back home, if I want to start working again, I can. And so from my perspective, I'm like, well, I can watch some really stupid movies or I can arrive home in Atlanta with no email in my inbox. I'm going to choose the no email in my inbox. But while we're on the ground, we check no email. We have a colleague that both of us know that she plans her vacations or her family plans her vacations so that they don't have very good um, cell phone reception. So that there's no temptation then to check anything because if you don't have the cell phone reception, you don't have internet, it's hard to do any work. That's kind of what we do. Like we like to hike and trek. So we've done some trekking in the Himalayas. We've done some trekking in the Andes where there is no promise of access. And you just have to say to your clients, ah, sorry, you're really not going to be able to get a hold of me. It's a great excuse. And I love that. The minute you put your out of office on your email, the minute that you put that out of office on your phone, it's like a mental switch. And sometimes I do that on the weekends, Friday at the end of the day. I don't always do it, but sometimes I do it when I really need that mental switch off. When I need to just give myself the okay, it's okay not to check your email. It's okay not to check your voicemail. It's okay to relax. And I will say there's a couple of interesting things that employers can do to help your employees leave for vacation and take time off. One of them, and I've actually, I actually had to do this one time. I had someone who worked for me who simply could not disconnect from their email. And I realized this the very first vacation they took. I was getting emails from them every day when they're on vacation. And I'd always respond back, stop checking. And they'd say, this is just who I am. I have to do it. So the next time they were planning to take a week-long trip, I said to them about 10 days before, we're going to change your email password and you're not going to have access to your email. And the person's immediate response was, what if an emergency comes up? I may have to handle it. I said, don't worry. All your email is going to be forwarded to me. If it's an emergency, I'll take care of it. If it's not an emergency, don't worry about it. It'll all be sitting in your inbox when you come back. And that's great for transparency too. There are some sectors that require their executives to take two weeks off just so that for that transparency piece, that if anything's going on that's not quite ethical, it will rise to the top. Exactly. Another best practice I've seen, although I've only seen this in a for-profit, there's a for-profit technology firm out of Denver. And by the way, for executive directors and board members, I'd love for you to do something like this, although maybe you can't afford to do it with the same price tag. There's a technology for-profit out of Denver that encourages all of their employees to take two consecutive weeks off. And if they do, the employee gets a bonus. Now it's taxable, so this is not the net. Gets a bonus of $7,500 to take their family somewhere. But if they check email once, or if they're caught responding to any voicemail, even once, they have to pay the $7,500 back. And I get that nonprofits maybe can't afford to do $7,500, but they could probably do $500 or $1,000 bonuses that say, we want to help contribute to your vacation. If you take a week off or two consecutive weeks off, we're going to give you this, but you have to pay us back if you do any work at all. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> I love that. I am going to try to find a way to incorporate that in the work I do and maybe with some of the clients I work with. I want to make sure that we have time for the off-the-map question. For one of you, the -the off-the-map question is pretty far off the map. For the other, eh, it's close to the map, but still a little ways off. Bethany, 
I spent some time at your website, and I noticed that your consulting practice has a director of health and wellness, and I would love for you to introduce us to that director. Yes. So my director of health and wellness, I'm an LLC, so that means we technically have no employees, but I do have a director of health and wellness. She gets paid in food, walks, treats, and naps. And if you haven't guessed yet, my director of health and wellness is a rescue black lab. And she came into my life um, three years ago. And I had seen something where they'd made their dog their employee of the month every month. And so I stole that. And that is how I got a director of health and wellness. And But she actually does do a job because she's a dog. (laughs) And these statistics are out there of showing that animal owners are usually more fit, you know, better mental health, all of those good stats. You know, she gets me outside. If she was not here living by myself, there'd be days I might not walk even outside. But because I have her, I walk outside at least three times a day. And that is great for mental health. You know, I can pet her and love her have a little bit of companionship here in my apartment while I'm working. And, you know, sometimes she even helps me take a break because she'll make a little noise saying, no, 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 you need to stop. And I need petted right now. And so (laughs) that is how she got her title of director of health and wellness. That is incredible. I love that. And I love the fact that you put it on your website. I think it really speaks to your personality and your values and clients and prospective clients have to see that as well. Right. Yes. And she's all over my social media. You can see the employee of the month see, I mean, it's always a guess who's going to get employee of the month every month, but you can see that on my social media. And then sometimes she pops in for other things. So yeah, it's an organizational cultural thing now. That's really awesome. Trish, I understand that you have spent a lot of time studying Disney. So the off the map question for you is what leadership lessons can be learned from Disney? Well, there's nothing that I love to talk about more than Disney. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things that brought Bethany and I together was our love for all things Disney. I'm also a reader, and Bethany is also a reader. At the beginning of the year, back in January, back before we knew about COVID, back before it changed our world, I decided that my focus for professional development this year would be that I was going to take a deep dive into Disney leadership. And there is so much information out there from Walt Disney himself to how they created the parks, to Imagineering, to the leaders in Disney. Um, Recently, there was a book by Bob Iger that came out, and that was the first book that I read in my Disney leadership year. And then I quickly moved to Imagineering and what they do um, as a group to communicate, create stories, so much good stuff so many books. But what I have come to learn, practically speaking, to create a line between Disney and being a grant professional is professional development, leadership skills and techniques, customer service, all of those things, we need that in our grant professional lives. We need that when we're dealing with other people, when we're coming to the table at meetings, when we're communicating with people that we don't know, and when we're putting our best foot forward. And also, I have found that professional development and strong leadership are great for eliminating burnout. Absolutely. 
Trish, it sounds like there might be a book in you sometime in the next few years about leadership lessons from Disney. I love that. There are a couple of really great podcasters who have Disney leadership-based podcasts um, that are absolutely free to listen to, just like your podcast, and um, definitely promotes leadership and understanding and customer service. But there are also a ton of books on Disney leadership, too, that you can go to the library and get for free. You can order them on Amazon, or um, you can probably borrow them from a friend. Obviously, our listeners are podcast listeners. So which one podcast on leadership in Disney would you recommend? I love Creating Disney Magic with Lee Cockerell. That one is fantastic. It comes out every Tuesday, I believe, and they have a great backlog. Nice. We have a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Trish, Bethany, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Listeners will want to know how to reach out to you. So listeners, you can go to Bethany's Consulting Practice website. It's bmpconsulting.org. There you will find resources on grant writing, and you can also learn more about Bethany's grant writing services. Also, make sure you go to Trisha's website, writestuffdelaware.com. That's right, like I'm writing a letter to a friend, writestuffdelaware.com. And there, you will also find information about grant writing, as well as services that she offers. Now, they've also asked that I make sure all of our listeners know about grantprofessionals.org. And grantprofessionals.org is a great organization and website. And if you go there, you can find out more about becoming a grant professional and getting a certificate in that. You can also go to grantprofessionalsfoundation.org if you are looking to get a scholarship, either to be a member or to take the certification courses. So please make sure you go to that website as well. Hey, Trish, Bethany, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you thank for you. having us. This was so much fun. All right, listeners, if you were busy Googling how you can start your pandemic trip to Disney and get those leadership lessons and a tax deduction all at the same time. By the way, quick reminder, I don't do tax consulting. I'm not saying that's really tax deductible. But if you were Googling that and were not able to write down all of those URLs, no worries. You can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And at that website, you can get to BMP Consulting, Write Stuff Delaware, Grant Professionals, their foundation, and will also link to the Disney Leadership Podcast that Trish had mentioned. Quick reminder, listeners, don't forget, 2021 is likely to be a good bit rougher than 2020. So if you're looking for some help, go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Check out our group coaching. It is going to be curriculum-based, and it will help you have a successful 2021, regardless of what the economy, the pandemic, or anything else throws at you. And one final thing, if you liked this episode, make sure that you listen to episode 152, Using Scrum to Avoid Burnout, with Diane Leonard. Another great grant writer that understands that burnout is real and we have to do what's necessary to prevent it. That, listeners, is our show for this week. Make sure that you go online, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And finally, I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. 
I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.